you'd open up with me to Psalm 7. When the elders decided that we would spend our summer in the Psalms and we began talking about and discussing and selecting which Psalms each of us would preach, I knew that I wanted to deal with at least one Psalm of imprecation. Now that may be a term that you're unfamiliar with. An imprecatory Psalm is a Psalm which calls down the wrath and judgment of God upon the wicked, usually upon the psalmist's enemies. Now these imprecations, these prayers for judgment are found throughout the Psalter. And this morning I'd like to begin by just giving you kind of a taste of the way that the psalmists pray for God's judgment. Psalm 5, verses 9 and 10. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Psalm 11, verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals upon the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Psalm 58, verse 6, O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. Let the stillborn child who never, or like the stillborn child who never sees the sun, sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Psalm 69 verse 24. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. And I would simply ask the question, what are we supposed to do with those kind of psalms? Those are not the kind of psalms that they put to music and put in hymnals. I know because I looked this week. They're not there. Does God approve of those kind of prayers. Is it right to call down God's judgment upon your enemies? Is it right to pray against 
their salvation because that's what David was doing in Psalm 69 when he said, add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. And how does that square? How does Psalm 69, for instance, how does that square with Jesus' instructions in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 5, 43 to 45. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You don't get the idea that Jesus meant pray for them to be judged and condemned. Jesus says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the just and on the unjust. This is a really serious question. It may not be one that you've thought about much, but I would contend that it's one that you ought to think about because the Bible speaks very forthrightly about the judgment of God. Our God is a God of retributive justice. He's a God of retribution. He's a God who exacts vengeance upon evildoers. He's a God who pours out his wrath upon the wicked. Now, I know that there are a lot of people who would like to deny that because they can't comprehend how God's wrath can coexist alongside God's love as if the one must necessarily detract from the other, but you cannot deny the retributive wrath of God without ripping large portions out of your Bible. Let me give you just two examples, one from the Old Testament and one from the New, to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. Psalm 5, verses 4 to 6, David says, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness, evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Or what about Romans 12, 19, where Paul tells the church at Rome, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, which is a quote from Deuteronomy. Those are descriptions, and there are many, of the active enmity of God towards the wicked, of his retribution upon those who do evil. And that is not some character flaw on the part of God. God has no character flaws. All that he does, all that he feels is righteous and good and just. Therefore, the retributive justice of God is likewise good and right. Indeed, I would contend that it is praiseworthy. The church ought to praise the justice of God that destroys the wicked. Furthermore, you would not want to live in a world in which there was no retributive justice. 
a world in which there was no recompense for evil, a world in which wrongs were never righted and injustices were never rectified. In other words, we deny or disregard the retributive wrath of God only at our own peril. But the question this morning is not whether it is right for God to exact vengeance upon the wicked. The question this morning is whether it is right for us to hope in that vengeance, to take comfort in that vengeance, indeed to pray for that vengeance. You say, well, why on earth would we do that? Because the psalmists do. And we have to deal with that fact because they don't just do it once. They do it like no less than 12 or 15 times. In Psalm 7, the psalm that we're going to be looking at this morning, David takes refuge in the righteousness of God, a righteousness which not only rescues the godly, verse 10, it condemns the ungodly, verses 11 to 13. In Psalm 7, David takes comfort in the justice of God, a justice which is exercised in anger and fury, verse 6. In indignation, verse 11, a justice by which God wets his sword and bends his bow in order to destroy the wicked, verse 12. And this righteousness, this retributive justice of God, David praises. Indeed, verse 17, it makes him sing. And the question is, is that right? Is that a godly reaction on David's part? Is David loving his enemies in verse 7? And maybe more to the point, Should we follow David's example? Should we pray these kind of prayers? Well, in response to such questions, let me offer some preliminary thoughts to kind of guide our thinking as we work our way through this psalm this morning. All right, what I'm doing is is showing you where I'm headed. I'm going to give you about six thoughts very quickly to get us started, then I'm going to unpack those thoughts and and hopefully you will see those six arising from the text of Psalm 7. Number one, I refuse to be embarrassed by the Word of God. In other words, I'm not going to apologize for Psalm 7 or Psalm 5 or Psalm 11 or 58, or 69, or any of the other psalms of imprecation. They are part of God's holy, inerrant, inspired, infallible word. In other words, we can't just functionally rip them out of our Bible or skip over them in our reading through Scripture and pretend they're not there. They're there. God intends them to be there, and he intends them to be there for our instruction, nay, for our good. These are words of Holy Scripture, and they are to be believed and reverenced and studied as such, not dismissed or discarded as if they are somehow beneath the morality of modern man. Thought number two. Yet not all Scripture is prescriptive. 
Some of it is descriptive. For instance, the book of Joshua describes the conquest of Canaan, but it does not prescribe that the church should likewise take up the sword and conquer the kingdoms of this world by force. Third, nevertheless, the Psalms are presented as prescriptive prayers. What I mean is, I don't think that you can take Psalm 7 and say, well, the Bible's just recording that that's the way David felt. That's not necessarily the way that we should feel. Mm -mm. I think the Psalms are presented as godly expressions of godly men inspired of the Holy Spirit. They are presented as the godly words of godly people crying out to the Lord in the face of grave injustice and wickedness. Therefore, number four, I believe the imprecatory psalms are instructive for how we too ought to hope in, delight in, and pray for the justice of God in the face of the evil and injustice which we find in this world. Yet, number five we must always do so guarded and guided by Jesus' command in Matthew 5.44 to love our enemies and to pray for them. His command in Luke 6.27 to bless those who curse us and abuse us. But I don't see love for people and love for justice as mutually exclusive loves. I think you can do both. I think we've got to do both. Finally, I would just offer this. I strongly suggest, or suspect rather, that those who struggle with the imprecatory Psalms, they read Psalm 5 or 7 or 11 or 58 or 69 or some of those others, and, and they just feel angst over it. I suspect that those who bristle against the idea of praying down God's judgment upon the wicked have not themselves been the victims of severe injustice and evil. In other words, I think that if you have been the victim of abuse, injustice, evil, and wickedness for which you have seen no recompense in this life, I suspect that you don't struggle with these psalms. I suspect that they strike a chord deep within you and they feel right and good. I know some of you feel like that. I've counseled with you. I've prayed with you for justice using the thoughts of these psalms. And I suspect for you this morning's message will resonate strongly with your soul. So with those six thoughts in mind, we're going to walk through Psalm 7 and we're going to observe how David took comfort in God's righteousness and prayed for God's justice in the light of evil that was being inflicted upon him. And in so doing, we will find a model for how we ought to do the same. So just to be very clear, 
The message this morning is going to look at how David responded to injustice being afflicted upon him, and I'm going to suggest that you ought to respond in the same way when injustice is inflicted upon you. What do you do when you see or experience evil, injustice, abuse, wickedness, and there is no recompense, there is no justice in the foreseeable future? What do you do when you feel like David felt in verse 2, when like a lion tearing my soul apart, rending it in pieces, there is none to deliver? First, you take refuge in God's covenant. Look at verses 1 and 2. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest, like a lion, they tear my soul apart, rending it to pieces with none to deliver. So when his enemies were attacking him like a ferocious and and ravenous pack of lions, David fled for refuge to his God, to whom he was bound by covenant. Now, I see this idea of covenant displayed in two ways in verse 1. I think think David's covenant relationship with God is on his mind here because of two things that appear in verse 1. First, David uses God's personal covenant name, the name by which God was known to his covenant people Israel, the name Yahweh. You see, I don't see the name Yahweh in verse 1. Well, it's there in the word Lord in all capital letters. Letters. When you see in the Old Testament the word LORD written in all caps, that is a sign to you that this is God's covenant name, Y-H-W-H, transliterated from the Hebrew, Yahweh. This was the name that God made known to Israel when he was bringing them out of Egypt and bringing them into the land when they became his covenant people. Secondly, you'll notice that David uses the first person possessive pronoun, my. Look, O Yahweh, my God, in you do I take refuge. David is crying out to his covenant God. Now, David's tone is certainly desperate. You save me. Deliver me. Preserve me. There's desperation all the way through this psalm. Nevertheless, this is not some shot in the dark. This is not like the blind shout out to the heavens, calling out to whatever gods may be, like a desperate soldier cowering in a foxhole. This is a child of the covenant calling out to his covenant Lord. God had bound himself to Israel generally and to David particularly. And so David is approaching God with the assurance and with the confidence that when he cries out, God will hear. When he calls out, God will answer. God will act on his behalf. God will save. Why? Because God has bound himself to David by covenant. 
His enemies are like ravenous lions threatening to tear his soul apart and to rend it in pieces. There's no one else to deliver. So yes, David is desperate because of the circumstances, but he's still confident in his God. He has access to the fortress, the mighty fortress of God's covenant faithfulness. He can cry to the Lord and he knows that the Lord will arise and will defend his cause. So what are the circumstances that call forth this desperate cry? Who are these ravening lions that are threatening to to tear his soul into pieces? Well, look up at the inscription at the top. It says, A Shagayan of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. Now, we don't know what Shagayon means, and we don't know who Cush was. Both of those occur only here in the New Old Testament, so we don't have anywhere else that we can look and reference and say, oh, here, that's what that means. But there are two clues in this inscription which I think give us insight into the nature of David's trouble. The first one is that David tells us that Cush is a Benjaminite. That is, he is of the tribe of Benjamin. And that leads me to believe that the circumstances evoking this psalm come from one of two episodes in David's life, either from the days in it, very early in, in David's adult life when he was on the run from King Saul, who was pursuing David all over the, the region of Israel. You'll recall that Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. Saul felt threatened by David. And so Saul pursues him in order to kill him, and it's very likely that he had fellow tribesmen, also of the tribe of Benjamin, that were aiding him in the pursuit. It could be that's the circumstance. David on the run for his life from Saul that calls forth the words of this psalm. Or it could come from much later in David's life, when David is is an older man, from the time of Absalom's rebellion, when Latent hostilities within the tribe of Benjamin boiled over against David. You can, you can read about some of Benjamin's problems with David in 2 Samuel 16 and 2 Samuel 20. I think that is more likely. For reasons I'm not going to go into, I think that it is, it is Absalom's rebellion, the kind of the Israelite civil war where the tribe of Benjamin was on the other side of David that, that calls forth the words of this psalm. The second clue from the inscription as to the nature of the attack David was enduring is that David says that he sang the psalm to the Lord concerning the words of Cush. In other words, it seems to be a particularly malicious form of slander that David is experiencing that call forth the words of this psalm. And the fact that David cries to the Lord from deliverance from his pursuers, notice the plural in verse 1, indicates that this slander had spread far and wide and had seriously damaged David's reputation. I think this is why David says that the lions were threatening to tear his soul apart and they were threatening to rip his soul into shreds. So David is the victim of malicious slander spread far and wide, and he can't combat it and he can't control it on his own. 
Okay? The, the events, the slander are threatening to damage his reputation. They're threatening to destroy his kingdom. If I'm right, and this is coming forth during Israel's civil war, Absalom's rebellion, David is on the verge of his kingdom being just torn in half. And there's nothing he can do. He says at the end of verse 2, none can deliver. And I would just sort of pause and ask you here, have you ever felt that? Can you relate to that feeling of desperation? Has anyone ever maliciously spread a falsehood about you which brought serious damage to your reputation? It caused people to look upon you differently, maybe even caused close friends to withdraw from you because of what someone else has said about you. I know that some of you have, and I suspect it's happened to others. The question is, what do you do? In times like that, when you're being slandered, it does no good to plead innocence. It does no good to try to refute it because it just comes across as defensive and it wouldn't convince anyone anyway because people would much rather believe the salacious lie than the boring truth. Instead, when you are slandered, you do what David did. You take refuge in God's covenant. The Lord is your God. He has promised to stand by you, to keep you, to preserve you for the day of salvation. And that promise is sealed by the blood of His Son who died to bring you into that new covenant relationship with God. So don't strike out against your enemies. Don't go on some sort of counter-offensive campaign. Do not return evil for evil. Don't attempt to justify yourself. Flee to God for refuge. Cry out to Him to save you from your pursuers and deliver you. And I promise you, I promise you, based upon the covenant sealed by the blood of Christ, God will stand by you and He will deliver you in due time. He will give you justice. So take refuge in Him and let Him fight your battles for you. Number two, from the safety of that covenant assurance, that's the safety of that place of refuge you must expose your heart to God's searching gaze. You must lay your soul bare before the Lord and ask Him to reveal to you if there isn't at least some element of truth to the slander. You'll notice David doing that in verses 3 to 5. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there's wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. In other words, you can't cry out for God's justice upon them and neglect to affirm his justice which may be due to you. It's possible that we find in these verses the content of the slander that's being leveled against David. It appears that David is being accused of breaking a treaty. 
with an ally. That word friend in verse 4 literally means one allied by covenant or allied by treaty. Not necessarily a close personal friend, but a friend by mutual agreement in, in, in some sort of treaty relationship. It seems that David is being accused of attacking an enemy without provocation. If I've repaid my friend, my ally, with evil or plundered my enemy without cause. In essence, to use modern terminology, David is being accused of war crimes. It's a serious accusation. Whether against external enemies outside of Israel or maybe internal enemies like the Benjaminites in the course of that civil war, David says that if he has treated his enemies treacherously or unjustly, then may the Lord hand him over to them to be trampled to death. Yet David is confident that he will be acquitted in the Lord's judgment. He is confident of his innocence. He's confident that he's being slandered unjustly. And the only way that he has arrived at that place of confidence is because he has seriously and sincerely searched his heart before the gaze of God. Now, these verses raise a couple of important points regarding our response to injustice. First, I just want to point out that there is such a thing as a victim of injustice. It is common in in Christian circles to hear people say something like, well, there are no innocent parties in a divorce. That's not true. It would be more accurate to say there are no sinless parties in a divorce because marriage is the union of two sinners and their innate sinfulness and selfishness is inevitably going to cause what I call normal marital conflict. In other words, those, that normal conflict that is going to necessitate mutual repentance, mutual forgiveness that is rendered necessary by the fact that you have two sinners trying to share life together. But when one spouse bails on the marriage covenant, that spouse is the perpetrator of the divorce and the other is the victim of the divorce. And it is possible, indeed it is necessary, to discern which one is which. And the same could be said of any form of injustice. So let's not flatten out our doctrine of sin so as to exclude its many degrees and shades. David is not saying that he is a perfect man, that he's a sinless man, that he's made no mistakes, that he's committed no sins. David is saying that he's an innocent man. He's saying that he is the victim of injustice. But even if you are the victim of an injustice, whether it be a divorce or slander or whatever it may be, it is still wise to lay your heart open before the Lord's searching eye and to say what David says in verses 3 and 4, O Lord, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, then show me and then take responsibility for your sin." This is especially important in a divorce or any kind of relational background, maybe a break or breakdown, a breakdown between 
um, friends or a parent and a child, but especially the breakdown of a marriage. It is important even for the victim to ask the question, is there a reason this person is saying such awful things about me? Is there some offense that I have given for which I need to make restitution? That kind of introspection, that kind of confession will guard your heart against bitterness, against self-deception, and against a self-destructive victimhood mentality. In other words, own your sin, which is not the same thing as saying deny the injustice. But you'll notice that before David takes his accusers to court before God, He takes his own heart to the Lord, exposes it before him and says, show me my sin. That is an important step in dealing with injustice. Why? Because you want to move on to the next step with a clear conscience before God and men. Once you have searched your own heart, laid it bare before the Lord's judgment, when you emerge confident that you are indeed an innocent victim of injustice, what do you do? Do you sit around and wait for the resurrection when everything will be better and all sorrows will be forgotten? No. That is not the way Christians are to respond to injustice. That's not the way the psalmists respond to injustice. In fact, I think to do that, I think to just watch injustice happen and say, well, God will make it all right one day. I think that's to deny a part of the imago dei, the image of God in man. God hates injustice, and if we are being conformed into his image, so then will we. We won't just become okay with it. Be complacent to it. God desires justice, and so should we as well. And I think, therefore, it is totally appropriate to give voice to what you should be feeling in the face of injustice, which is a deep and righteous anger over the injustice and a deep and holy longing for justice. To give voice to that by crying out to the Lord to make right what is wrong, to avenge the victims of the injustice, and to bring judgment upon the wicked. I think it's holy to do what David does in verses 6 and 9. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. You'll notice that string of imperatives. God, arise in your anger. Stir yourself up. Be roused. Be angered at the injustice which has occurred. Lift 
yourself up against the fury of my enemies. In other words, rise up and put an end to this wickedness. Awake for me. Come to my defense. Return on high. Return to your seat of justice and begin to dispense judgment. It's not that David thinks God has been negligent or that he's fallen asleep or, or his attention has been, has been drawn away. For the Lord neither slumbers nor sleeps, says Psalm 121.4. It's rather that God has permitted this injustice to linger and David wants him to act. He wants him to defend his cause. Verse 6, David wants God to be angry. Verse 7, he wants God to sit in judgment upon the peoples, to pass judgment upon what he sees, including upon David, who is confident, verse 8, of his own integrity in the matter, and finally to execute justice by bringing the evil activities of wicked men to an end and by establishing the righteous. Okay, verses 6 to 9 are the imprecation portion of the psalm. This is where David calls down the judgment of God upon his enemies. This is the portion that raises the question, should we do the same when we are the victims of injustice? Should we respond to injustice inflicted upon us by calling down God's judgment upon those who have wronged us. Is it right for us to pray, Arise, O Lord, in your anger, lift yourself up against, and then name our enemies? Well, I have two thoughts that I hope will kind of guide us through this thorny question. First, I just want to unequivocally say, yes, I believe it is appropriate to cry out to God for justice, to cry out to God to put an end to the evil which the wicked are perpetrating. I've prayed that way a few times in my life. God, they're lying. Manifest their wickedness and their deceit to the world. Reveal them for who they really are. Bring their wickedness to an end. I don't believe that it is wrong to ask God to act in judgment now, to set right what is wrong now, and not only on the day of judgment, but also in the present. In fact, I think it would be wrong to sit back and watch injustice happen with the complacent attitude of, at least God will make everything right in the by and by. And I say this recognizing that often when God brings that eschatological judgment, that judgment which he will reign upon the earth on the last day, when God chooses to bring that judgment into the present, the wicked perish. People die. They suffer damnation. I don't pray for the death of my enemies. I don't pray for the damnation of my enemies. But I do pray for God's judgment, which may or may not include the death of the wicked. Listen, justice is a holy and godly desire. But what happens when God's justice falls upon the wicked? They perish. 
So no, it is not unholy to call down God's judgment upon the wicked. But, and it is a big exception or caveat. Jesus said to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And we've got to reckon that. Okay? Here's what we need to do as New Testament believers, as the church. We've got to hold up Psalm 7. We've got to put it side by side with Matthew 5. And we've got to say, how do these two things fit together? I do not think it is right to call down God's judgment as an act of vengeance upon those who have hurt us. In other words... It is right to pray for God to intervene as sovereign judge because we hate evil and falsehood and injustice. That's right. That's what David's doing. It is wrong to ask God to exact vengeance for us because we hate our enemies and we want them to suffer as we have. And we need to search our heart when we pray for justice because it's a thin line that we've got to tread. I think we would do well to ask ourselves, if the person injuring me, slandering me, abusing me, perpetrating wickedness and evil against me, if that person were to cease their wickedness and repent of their evil, would I forgive them? If so, then I suggest that your prayer arises from a desire for justice. If not, then your prayer arises from a desire for vengeance. It's a good way to check your heart when you're praying. David's cry in verses 6 to 9 is not a cry of vengeance. It is a cry of faith. David is hurt. He's grieved. He's angry. And I know many of you can relate to those emotions. But David is also confident. Rather than taking matters into his own hands, rather than seeking vengeance upon his enemies, rather than nursing a grudge and growing more and more embittered against that person, David takes them to court, so to speak. He turns to the Lord, he lays the case before God, That's what the righteous do in the face of unrighteousness. That's what the just do in the face of injustice. They bring their case before the Lord and they cry out to Him for justice. Then they take comfort in God's righteousness. God may intervene in response to that prayer. He may not. But one thing the righteous know God's character is unchanging and judgment will come sooner or later, either now or on the last day. It will come. And this is the foundation of tremendous comfort and joy in the hearts of the righteous. David says, my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. 
If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I see in these verses four sources of comfort to the suffering psalmist. Each of them is rooted in some attribute of God's unchanging character. So these are four sources of comfort for you in the midst of your suffering of injustice. First, in the midst of his agony and the unjust suffering he is enduring, David takes comfort in the fact that God is a shield. He's a protection who saves the upright in heart. Okay, The believer has the confidence and comfort of knowing that nothing, no evil, no injustice can befall him which will not work by God's sovereign providence for his everlasting good and glory and joy. It was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross and despised its shame, and it's for the joy that is set before us that we do the same. Now, we're going to glory in this truth that nothing can happen to us that is not ordained by God for our good. We're going to glory in that truth all the way through Romans chapter 8. The second half of Romans chapter 8 is all about the unshakable purpose of God in and through the unjust sufferings of his people. We're going to see Paul say, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The righteous know that God is their shield, their protector, that nothing can touch us which does not pass through his sovereign hand, and he will save his godly ones no matter what injustice afflicts them in this life. Second, David takes comfort in the Lord's judgment and wrath. He says, God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation, literally wrath, every day. I want you just to think about the implication of that statement. Even if God chooses not to intervene in your life in, in, to bring the unjust suffering which you are enduring to an end, even if he says, no, my justice will await the judgment on the last day. You can have the comfort of knowing that God feels indignation because of that injustice every day, including today. Even if God delays his judgment, he is not unfeeling or insensitive to your plight, he's angry. He is indignant. He is wrathful against your enemies. He may have some sovereign purpose in withholding his judgment for the last day, but he is not unfeeling or unsympathetic to your pain. 
And that is comforting for the victims of injustice. When you've been victimized, what do you want more than anything? When you've suffered injustice, what do you want more than anything? You want someone to be angry with you. You want someone to be empathetic with you, to feel what you feel so that you don't feel so helpless and alone. God is that for you. He is angry at your spouse for leaving you every day. He feels anger. He is angry with that man for abusing you every day. He is angry with for that woman for slandering you and spreading that malicious gossip which so severely damaged your reputation and caused all of your friends to withdraw from you. He is angry with her every day. You are not alone in the injustice that you have suffered. David is taking comfort in the wrath of God. And that is not an unholy thing. Third, God will execute judgment now or in the future. And he is preparing for that day. David says he has wetted his sword. That's the image. He's got that stone and he's running it down his blade. He's fitted his flaming arrow upon the string and he's drawn it back until the bow is taut. And he will let fly in due time if the wicked do not repent. So let that imagery sink in. And like David, take comfort in it. If you have been severely wronged by someone who appears to have gotten away with it, does it not help to picture God in the heavens, infuriated by the injustice and the evil done to you, his beloved child, sharpening his sword and fitting his flaming arrows upon a drawn bowstring. You can trust God with judgment. You can trust God with vengeance. He does not forget. Finally, David takes comfort in the fate of the wicked. God will bring an end to the wicked and to their schemes. Evil will not triumph. Justice and truth will have the final word. For those who love justice and truth and righteousness, that last day will be a day of joy. For those who love injustice and falsehood and wickedness, the last day will be a day of terror. So take comfort, you suffering saints. God will judge of that you may be sure. Now, if you have a problem with something that I've just said or the way that I've handled this psalm so far, it's totally fine. I'd be glad to talk with you about it. Before you come to me, I want you to ask yourself this question. Have I really ever been the victim of grave injustice? And then try to put yourself in the shoes of someone who has Ruminate on that for a little while. And then come ask me whether 
we ought not pray like David did. Finally, David is able to sing praise for God's justice, importantly, before that justice is actually seen. Verse 17, I will give, or I will give praise to the Lord, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. I want you to remember where David began this psalm, way up in verse 1. His enemies are like ravening lions, pursuing him, desiring to tear his soul apart, to rip him to shreds. There's nobody to deliver him. Now, 17 verses later, his despair has been transformed to hope, and this hope is expressed in a song of praise. How did David get there? He got there by praying like this. How are you going to get there? You're going to get there by praying like this. Now, I was talking with Mike this week about songs that fit with this morning's theme, and we had trouble coming up with a lot that speak of God's justice and righteousness exercised in judgment. It seems that the church is reluctant to sing about God's judgment. The psalmists weren't. I think this is a gap in modern hymnody that needs to be filled. God's righteous wrath, His determination to see evil destroyed, to see the wicked punished, to see wrong set it right, is an attribute of God that is worthy of praise, as are all His attributes. David knew it. The psalmists knew it, and anyone who has found comfort and refuge in God's righteousness know it as well. Now, I know many of your stories. I know that there are represented in our church a tremendous amount of hurt and pain and abuse and injustice. I know many of you have been profoundly affected by evil, by betrayal, by treachery, by slander, by abuse, by deceit. For some of you, those wounds are still gaping open. For others, the scars are deep. This morning, Psalm 7 speaks to you about that unjust suffering which you have suffered, and it offers you a refuge in God's righteousness which is determined to bring all evil into judgment and to set all wrongs to right. So I encourage you this morning to follow David's example. First, take refuge in God's covenant. Second, expose your soul to God's gaze. Third, Cry out for God's judgment. Fourth, take comfort in God's righteousness. Fifth, sing praise for God's justice. Don't be a one-sided Christian. Someone who glories in God's mercy but not in His justice. The Lord is a God of justice, of judgment, and of wrath. And that is good news if, and only if, you are reconciled to Him by faith. So for some of you here, you need to interact with Psalm 7 with the knowledge that you are 
the wicked against whom God feels indignation every day. And you need to flee to God's mercy for refuge from God's judgment. A mercy which was made available when Christ died on the cross for your sins and rose again from the dead. For the rest of us, I would just remind you that God's judgment is not something to be embarrassed by. It's not something to be avoided. It is something to worship. It is the hope of the afflicted. It is the comfort of the saints. It is there for us to love, for us to feel, for us to take refuge in. And I hope you will.